Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung, and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T.com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Get $75 off any Plan Academy course by visiting planacademy.com forward slash chatter that's planacademy.com forward slash c-h-a-t-t-e-r hey everyone this episode is brought to you by justdo.com justdo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at project chatter i agree val i like to keep things simple and justdo is perfect for that but i do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well and one of my favorites is the task specific chat Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. Hello, project people. You're listening to the Project Chatter podcast, your trusted source of project experts. I am your host, Val Matthews, and I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Dale Fung. Hello, Val. Before we get into this, it's your birthday coming up soon, isn't it? Stop it. Stop it. I told you no. You told me no. (laughs) You didn't even bring cake to this one. I'm disappointed. Not this yet. Next time. Next time. Okay, we'll have to wait here, but um, happy birthday for for the for the upcoming one. But yeah, hello, folks. It's great to be on another podcast. Uh, we have a very, very exciting um, lineup and topic today, so I'm keen to get into this one. I'm with you, mate. And we've got two guests today, so I'm very excited to get into this. But just a reminder, before we get into it, for our listeners to hit that subscribe button on whichever platform you listen to your good podcasts on, or if you like video... Check out our YouTube channel for the full podcast and our guest bonus Q&A. And if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, check out us or get in touch with us at projectchatterpodcast.com. Let's get on with it. In this pod, we are joined by our good friend, Nat Moyers. Welcome back. And Richard Pauczynski. And we're going to talk about Crossrail or what we can talk about and systems that work. Hi, Richard and Nat. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Got blown away by the introduction. Uh, we are h- happy to have you guys on. Uh, obviously, Nat, we've had you on before. Richard, welcome to the show for the first time. Before we get into, I think Dale's going to do a little bit of a bio and then we'll get stuck in the crossrail. 
I am, Val. So it's a great bio, but we will get stuck into it. So Rich, you're up first. Uh, so Richard joined Arcadis in February 2019. Throughout his career, he has collected both hands-on program management experience after working on major programs such as the Jubilee Line Extension, HS1, West Coast Mainline, and Crossrail, where he was Program Controls Director. In his latest role, he is supporting Network Rail's TransPennine Route Upgrade Program, a multi billion pound enhancement scheme stretching from Manchester to York. Richard has also collected six years in the corporate world, helping to run, grow and evolve companies such as Parsons Brinkerhoff, Balfour Beatty and Mace. He is a fellow with the Institution of Civil Engineers and the APM and is a supervising civil engineer passionate about skiing and triathlon. Awesome, Rich. As Val says, it's great to have you on the pod. How are you feeling? Yeah, pretty good. Thank you. Good. It's great to have you. Nat, we've had you on before. Welcome back. Episode 29. It was a full-on podcast. We have the full bio there. So folks, go back to episode 29, listen to that. But a quick short uh, snapshot of that bio. Nat Moyes has 12 years at the same software company, which is starting to become a rarity. That's probably 13 by now, because we spoke to you last year. Uh, <laughs> but that is Nat's tenure at Deltec, supporting their PPM products and clients. She's seen a lot of industry change, and I'm sure you have over the past year as well, Nat. And she's had the privilege to support a number of established clients as well as grow some new ones. She's been involved with the APM SIG, steering committees, user groups, and general advisory boards, all focused on people, process, and toolset. Welcome back, Nat. How are you feeling? Yeah, good. Thank you. So I had so much fun last time. I've now brought a far more educated friend to join us on this pod. Don't be silly. Don't be silly. We had lots of fun and lots of insight from you last time. And I'm sure people are going to go back straight after this podcast and listen to episode 29 in full color. But let's get into it. Uh, Crossrail. And we when we posted this on the social various social networks, there was quite mm. a bit of a interest in Crossrail. And particularly from our, you know, UK audience. Um, but just, I guess, Rich, if I come to you first to sort of give a bit of a background of Crossrail and why it's been in the news, perhaps for some of the wrong reasons, and why there's so much interest, particularly for those listeners that perhaps are based in, you know, North America and Australasia, um, just to sort of set the scene as to why such an interest in Crossrail. Okay, so uh, for a while, Crosswell was um, was the biggest game in town, right? Um, it started, uh, well, it actually went back decades, um, but it finally got uh, the go-ahead in 2008. Um, it was a 10-year a scheme to essentially build a brand new railway uh, from way out in the west uh, of London, uh, near Reading, uh, to then come across London, uh, then dive underground, um, plant nine new stations underneath the main capital um, and then out into the service again and up to Shenfield um, in the sort of northeast arm of London. Um, it's a full-sized overground railway that runs underground. So for those that um, go on the tube network, um, you know, everyone's used to, to the tube running in all different directions. Crossrail um, is literally two or three times the size of the tube. I mean, it's, it's colossal. And when people see the, um, when, when they experience it for the first time, um, they'll be absolutely blown away by it. Um, the reason why we ended up in the news, um, 
I think in simple terms, uh, for so long, uh, we were touted as the 15 billion pound railway that was running on time and on budget. Um, our completion date was December 2018. And in August 2018, uh, unfortunately, uh, the program had to announce to, to everyone that it was not going to make that opening date. Um, there are a whole myriad of reasons uh, behind that. But, um, you know, why does Crossrail um, get such bad press? Um, to be fair, you know, I understand um, that receiving such bad news um, so sort of late in the day when the programme had said for so long that it was on time and on budget uh, was a real letdown to, to the people living in London. Um, and we've never been able to sort of live it down since. Um, I left the programme at the end of 2018. My contract on Crossrail was the first contract I've ever had where I knew that knew the end date um, when I when I started on the job. Um, I will say that uh, the near four years I had on Crossrail were the best four years um, of my career to date. Um, it is a fantastic scheme, um, and I will argue passionately with anybody uh, that wants to call Crossrail a failure. Um, you know, Crossrail is currently uh, looking to to open its doors to to paying members of the public in early 2022 uh, so there's still a, a year to go um, but you know by any standard you know a mega program that is delivering uh, not just a brand new railway line under the world's you know arguably busiest city um, not just delivering brand new trains but trains that for the first time are interfacing with three separate signaling systems that's simply never been done before and at the end of the day, you know, the 15 billion pound railway is going to get delivered for, I don't know, 19, 20 billion pounds. Um, I don't know what the current numbers are today. Um, but, you know, do the basic maths. That's 30 percent over budget. Um, and it's, you know, it was a 10 year program that is going to be delivered three something years late, 30 percent longer on schedule. You know, I can look at other major programs around that have, you know, doubled, quadrupled in mm. size. Uh, um, and, you know, you just cannot um, call Crossrail a failure. Um, and I think it's going to be like any other of these major programs. You talked about schemes that I worked on, High Speed One, uh, Jubilee Line Extension, uh, West Coast Main Line, you know, all very late, all over budget. But, you know, once those doors open and people start realising the benefits of the scheme, um, then they will just fall in love with Crossrail. And all will be and forgotten. Ho and, hopefully all, and hopefully all will be forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you go. That's, that's Crossrail in a nutshell. No, that is brilliant. And thank you for giving us the background there. And, you know, you add in some of the politics around all of it as well, you know, um, that was going on. And it sounds like a really simple project to deliver. Nothing complex or complicated about it. Um, <laughs> but jokes aside, I, I really appreciate your passion there about it as well. It's, it's fantastic to speak to people that have such a passion and care for the work they do that, that, um, you know, that, that, that I think is becoming a rarity. So I'm sure those listening in will go really take, take heed of, of what you're working on. But I mean, you, you know, you talk about projects, big projects and failures, etc. I'm sure Val will chime in about the Sydney opera house. Um, and, you know, everyone thought that was a failure, but um, you know, we look back in history and once benefits, as you're alluding to start being realized, um, then that's when, you know, the true measure of a project comes into play. But we're not there yet and we're continuing. And 
what we can hopefully do and what we'd like to do is delve into some of the lessons that can be learned and shared indeed um, to those listeners out there to say, you know, yes, um, it wasn't perfect the way things happened, but here's how we can do th things differently um, from all aspects, but taking those real life lessons and, and, and bring them into other project spaces and just sharing that knowledge, I think would be amazing. And also we obviously do have Nat um, on and from a, from a systems perspective, I'm really interested being a project controls person as well. Um, you know, what sort of, I guess, elements we could bring in perspective to say, you know, we, you know, what could we do differently today based on what we, we learning from, from that experience. So um, it, it's great that, that you set that up. So there have been um, a few questions posted on, on LinkedIn by various people, etc. cetera, but um, you mentioned one or two aspects that hit the news, the late um, release of information that things were going to be late. If we start there, and as we know, a lot um, happens before information is released, right? Um, Nat talked about people, process, and tools previously, and all of that comes into it. Um, I wonder if you are able to share why, perhaps from your perspective, that information was late because we've spoken to various professionals on the show and everyone talks about communication, stakeholder management, how that is key. Um, yet it feels like that wasn't particularly done very well. Is, are there any lessons to be learned from that experience? Do you want to ask me something else? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. So ever since I left Crossrail, right, I have um, I've batted this question around in, in my mind over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, one of the nice things uh, about being uh, a part of the Crossrail family in the time that I was on the, uh, on the project, um, I'm still, you know, very close to you know, a lot of the people that, that spent so many years on Crossrail, and we talk about it, we talk about it all the time. Uh, we replay, you know, what did we know and when? And I think that's one of the, that's been one of the main questions, certainly the London Assembly, you know, when they were doing their um, initial sort of inquiries into, um, into you know, the announcement of, of Crossrail being late, uh, wanted to know who knew what and when. Um, so here's, here's a snippet of, God's honest truth for, for me, right? I sleep perfectly okay at night when I think about Crossrail because for the almost four years that I was on Crossrail, uh, I signed off, you know, every single one of the, the reports um, that got given to Crossrail board and subsequently to its stakeholders. And I know everything that, you know, we said in its totality. I, I know all of the presentations that were given um, and I know, you know, how, how the information was, was relayed. Um, so it's not as simple as simply saying in August, we landed bad news. You know, uh, we were reporting um, internally growing pressure on Crossrail uh, for a long time. Uh, and, you know, uh, a program, uh, any major program uh, that does project control successfully um, doesn't rely on just one or two data points, relies on a whole series of data points. But, it is inherently true that a project is not late until it actually then becomes late. You can be behind schedule. Uh, you can have plans to mitigate those delays. You can have recovery plans in place, but you're not late until you reach a point in time where 
you know, all of the pieces come together and you can no longer um, address what is in front of you. Uh, and that happened in, in early 2018. Um, and at that point, we were then into, uh, you know, I won't say crisis management mode, but, you know, now that we know for sure that this thing isn't going to be delivered on time, um, how do we get this out and get it out as quickly as possible? Um, and at that point, you know, that's when the executive come into their own and they immediately start talking to their stakeholders. Um, and all of those conversations happen a lot earlier than the formal public announcement. So the formal public announcement is kind of like the last thing um, to, to sort of hit the airway, so to speak. Um, it's got to have uh, gone through all of the internal machinations before it, before it gets made public. Um, but, you know, the truth is, from a project controls perspective, uh, we were well aware um, of, you know, the increasing pressure uh, on, on Crossrail for a, for a very long time. Um, we were aware that uh, we, you know, period on period on period, uh, were not able to quite hit the output that we were expecting to hit. We were always, you know, one or two percentage points behind uh, each period on uh, planned works versus actual works delivered uh, based on measures that we had um, and you know it's the it's the culmination of all of that that ultimately you know brings you to a point where uh, you suddenly realize you know we can't we can't do anything more about this now um, mm. so yeah, um, I think for, for me uh, given that we we knew all of that do I, I look Back and do I, you know, think did we do everything within our power to, to mitigate those delays, to, to do everything about it? Um, and again, you know, there was an absolutely um, united team effort uh, to try to figure out uh, what the best thing um, to do in order to, to keep Crossrail um, on track to, to deliver on time. Um, you know, the commercial strategy uh, was designed around um, putting to bed. Um, unhelpful commercial disputes um, that pollute um, the collaborative effort between the supply chain and the client. Um, we systematically went through that starting in 2016 um, and, you know, addressed all of the issues. We, you know, it was a strategy essentially designed to, to remove uh, barriers um, from the supply chain. Um, so to allow them to essentially reset and move forward on a plan to complete. Um, one thing I'm particularly passionate about communicating to people so that people understand this, you know, every four weeks uh, we ran collaborative planning sessions um, with the contractors staff, as well as Crossrail project management staff, as well as the executive, you know, so uh, it wasn't just happening at low level. Um, our, you know, master operational handover schedule reviews, um, you know, were a big affair every four weeks. Um, with every single project chiming in, talking about what the current status of their job was and what they needed to do to complete it. But mm. the reality to all of this, you simply don't know what you don't know. And with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we can now say definitively that we had a better handle on planning around the civil engineering works. We had far less uh, of a grip around the planning, around the final um, system fit out, um, testing, commissioning, and what it would take to actually get a brand new railway into trial running. All of that happening at the same time as 
uh, new software being designed and uh, built by, by the supply chain. So um, to say that com Crossrail is complex um, is an understatement. Um, when I look back on, on everything and I talk about it with, with former colleagues, uh, I think we're all of the view um, that you know, the system-wide complexity, uh, we, it was just never going to be achievable in 10 years. We know that now. You know, we didn't know it at the time, but we know that now. Yeah. Um, and if you go online and you read the National Audit Office report that they did in May 2019, um, you know, they make some really salient points. Um, hindsight is, is an absolutely wonderful science, um, but they're absolutely right. You know, we did have a fixity on the December 2018 date. Um, it, was a, it was a date that was so set in stone that everything we did was designed to, to protect that date. Um, and that drove um, a desire, um, a, a culture, a behaviour um, to, you know, to spend the money that was available to us because we did have contingency money um, to accelerate works, to, to do whatever it was, to increase the amount of parallel working activities, um, to do everything possible to hold on to that schedule. But unfortunately, you can only hold on to it for so long. And yeah. 2019, yeah. it snapped. No, absolutely. And, you know, as you're talking there, I think, you know, all of us are nodding. And certainly Val and I have worked on projects where, you know, what you're saying resonates. And I, I thank you, first of all, for your candidness up front. Um, but I, I guess just to add on behalf of all project people, not just project controls, that no one enjoys delivering bad news. No one actually works on a project to fail. That is... If, if people are doing that, then they shouldn't be working on projects, right? But I'd, I've yet to come across someone that works on a project to miss a date or to overspend. Yeah, And exactly. people forget that. Um, and you talk about culture and you talk about some of the signs that you saw. And, and I'll hand over to Val because I'm sure he'll go into that in a bit. But I just want to add there that, you know, I, I can see, you know, you, you are passionate about this and, and you're giving your honest, candid view. And I'm just going, yeah. That I, I've seen that before, and it's really difficult. It's a tough space to be. But Val, please jump in. Yeah, no, I I, I, uh, I appreciate the view as well. I think a uh, big shout out to anyone on mega projects. I, I I really feel like we're not measuring mega projects the right way. We we seem to think there's one measure for all, and we use the iron triangle as our point of uh, success rate. So we say, you know, cost, time, and quality. That's how we're going to measure every single project, and that's it. But we all know, and Dal and I know, especially with the rail signaling piece, when you introduce, you know, you said trains, it's interfacing with three different signaling systems. Um, you're introducing software, you're introducing a timetable because you've got operating systems and operating train networks that cannot shut down. This is London, the city that never sleeps. So there's a lot of complexities, and I think it does fall into that complicated basket rather than just complex. I think with, with systems and tools, which we'll get to, Nat, I'm sure, is... Um, we can start to handle volume now. There's machine systems, there's tools out there now that volume isn't really going to be an issue in the near future or even now, but, but complications, that's a human element that needs to be managed and controlled. And the challenge is obviously the commercial and political pressures of putting a deadline in place that wasn't set by the project team that against all odds is always ambitious. And once that's set publicly, you work backwards from that date 
and you are tied to it regardless of the evidence. And we've seen that in, in other projects. And as it compiles and the date gets closer, you, you get a better estimate of the forecast and you say, well, actually, you know, there's, there's a probability that we might not hit that date. And that probability changes, you know, you, you put in mitigations, you do treatments, you change your resource plans. And like you said, the teams do everything they can. They pull out all stops to try and get these things done. So I think I commend anyone on the Crossrail project. Um, Australia's had some similar projects in terms of size and complexity and probably the, the media smear as well, where we had the National Broadband Network, which is to roll out optic fiber across the whole country. And everyone knows how big Australia is. If you don't Google it. And that was a very big challenge. Um, but lo and behold, like you said, hindsight's a great gift, isn't it? That when COVID happened, thank goodness we had optic fiber because everyone was working from home and Australians were, stay, were still able to, to work and keep the economy going and feed their families. And so, you know, I think Crossrail is very much the same, like you said, Rich, you know, maybe people are still a bit bitter about it and it's got some bad tastes in the media, but in the long term. I think it's a really good investment and, and obviously it's going to benefit the people in the UK. So I think one of the challenges is how do we not measure mega projects by cost, time and quality? Is there a better metric to measure mega projects from your perspective? Um, I don't have the answer to that is, is the honest truth. Uh, I, as, as you sort of said in the intro, uh, Dale, I'm currently working on Transpennine, right? So Transpennine, is at the other end of the scale. Transpennine is still going through its outline business case. Um, and what I am seeing, uh, and I'm, I'm not here to talk about Transpennine, but uh, what I am experiencing uh, is the same as what the Crossrail people experience, it's the same as what Heathrow Third Runway people experience, it's the same as what Hinkley people experienced, which is to get a mega program off the ground in the first place, there is huge pressure to drive down cost to compress schedule, to, to be able to, um, you know, uh, commit to um, key benefits within certain parliamentary cycles. There is, there is big mm. drivers to doing that. And yeah. One of the questions that I'm immediately faced with straight away is, you know, if, if we had known that Crossrail was going to be 13, maybe 14 years on day one, and if we had known that it was going to be at least another you know, four, five billion pounds on top, would it have been delayed another two years whilst, you know, those numbers were argued in, in Parliament? I don't know. Um, but, you know, what I do know is that that political uh, balance between, you know, getting uh, an infrastructure project off the ground versus, um, you know, how a, an infrastructure project ultimately turns out um, is, is not easy. Your, your question around, um, you know, is there a better metric? Um, I read that NAO report again uh, before coming on this podcast to talk uh, to you guys. Uh, it's been quite a while since I read it, but um, it, did say, uh, it did say one thing um, that sort of resonated with me, got me thinking, you know, this, this fixity around an end date. I look back and I think, would we have been better on Crossrail to simply say, right, look, you know, Crossrail is essentially a civil engineering job followed by a system fit out, followed by testing commissioning of brand new railway systems that are very complex, followed by trial running, you know? Yeah. With all of the skills that we've got, we can put an accurate estimate together for the civil engineering piece and let's lock in a date for when that'll get done. But from there on in, 
we're going to have to build an estimate based on what we know further down the track. So, you know, could we could we get into a situation where mega programs don't actually uh, have a fixed end date at the point in which they're they're approved? You know, they have staged end dates. That to me is is something that is is very worthy of, of discussion. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I also know. Yeah, I also I also know that somehow we have to kind of try to to divorce the relationship between political will for a project to happen or not happen versus the engineering requirement um, behind a, a scheme um, for for society. And you know, uh, we're kind of moving to that in the UK with the National Infrastructure Council. Um, I'm not particularly close to, to the Infrastructure Council, but you know, my understanding was always that the aspiration behind that was, you know, to, to basically get engineers uh, to have a, a bigger role to play in decisions around national infrastructure, as opposed to it being a decision made by someone in Treasury um, who simply looks at a scheme and can no longer justify, you know, spending X billion pounds on something in the northeast or in the southwest because they don't feel that the political support is there for the scheme. Um, yeah. So you know, there is to me that is that is something else that we need to seriously talk about in this country a bit more. Well, that, I think you're, you're being on. I think we need qualified people to, who are qualified in that field providing and shaping policy and and providing education really um it's a bit like media as well we have you know newsrooms talking about projects which they don't understand so naturally they smear them with you know let's be honest most newsrooms are not optimistic they'll take the pessimistic route because that gets the clicks but but ultimately we probably need a you know a project newsroom read by project people and providing updates on what's really happening and use that as their own press release or public release for these mega projects. I think I, and I, there is an experiment going on. I'm going to get Nat in because she's been patiently waiting there in a second. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, there is an experiment down in, in Australia and Victoria where they're doing just that with a CPTC signaling program called Metro Tunnel. It's around the $14 billion mark where they have done exactly what you just said, Rich, where they've split the packages. So they've got a civils and tunnels package. They've got an infrastructure package and they've got a uh, systems integration package, which is, I'll see how that goes. It's still in, in, in kind of hitting delivery phase now. So we'll let you know how that methodology goes. They're all separate PPPs. So obviously contracts play a role in that. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, the jury's out whether that's more successful, but it'd be great to compare. I think this is, you know, this platform and talking to people like yourself, Rich, and that is we can, we can have this dialogue and then we can check back in a year and say, hey, you know, hindsight again, was this successful? Could we apply this in the UK? Can UK apply what they're doing over there with the National Infrastructure Council? I think Australia should look at that as well. Um, but Nat, I want to get you back in because um, you've been sitting there very patiently listening attentively. And, you know, the same point around the metrics. And I don't know if you know the answer to this or you've got some ideas, but you've certainly been around software and performance software on projects. And so, you know, can you weigh in on, is there better metrics? Is there a better way to kind of alert um teams on on forecast accuracy and whether or not we've got better options now yeah so um i was thinking about the pod that we did before when we were talking about you know the future of project controls and everybody just being an analyst and looking at mm. the data and 
when I first started with Dell Tech and I was kind of learning about kind of earn value and all of those good things, I remember reading um, one of our, I think they're called Clarity Reports. Um, and they're reports that Dell Tech does. They put them out to our clients. We get loads of feedback and then it's just kind of how project controls is changing. And I always remember on the earn value, specifically as it relates to aerospace and defense, is that earn value was there because you don't always know what you're actually building. So if you're building an aircraft carrier or some kind of craft that's going into space, on the day that you decide to do that, if there's a 10 year difference between the start date and the end date, a lot is going to change technology wise, design wise, politically wise, depending on who's kind of driving said country at the time. Um, and so earned value was something that was, OK, so we're not 100 percent sure what we're going to build. So we're not 100 percent sure what date that's going to finish because there's a lot of change happening but what we do know is we know what quality looks like and quality can then be aligned against your performance so you could say thinking about what Richard was talking about and what you were talking about Val when you say let's take cost time and quality if we put more focus onto are we actually do we have a good plan are we delivering what we say we want to say because Richard I think you said a couple of times we would do our planning reviews and we'd always be a couple of percentage points out but if you're always focusing on doing the best delivering the best ensuring that the scope that you've got is going to take one man one day to dig a hole you know typical boring earned value if you focused on that does that give you especially from the media's perspective because you're not wasting money you're making sure that the work that you're doing is driving um, an end project you're getting value for money you are moving forward everybody is kind of included does that help take some of the pressure off and allow the project to change direction because even with Crossrail you know we've been building railways in the UK and the globe for a very long time but even with like hs2 now the amount of change either to the project to the political environment to the amount of oak trees that have to come down in order for things to go through and that kind of mm. um how are we going to do that are we going to we need to now move bats and we need to move this and we need to move that all of that is things that we're dealing with today that maybe we didn't deal with 30 years ago and we will be dealing with different things in another 10 years but we don't give ourselves enough time to be able to react to that change because, as Richard said, everybody's looking at that end date and remaining at that end date. And I don't know. I wonder whether or not and it's it maybe earn value and putting the focus on what have we done? What have we delivered? And would the media be happier with that? Because you can then say, do you know what? I said it was going to cost this and it has cost this and we're moving forward. And everybody can see that progress because that's what earned value is. It's about understanding and quantifying progress as you move forward. I don't know. My yeah, no, they're good comments. It's, uh, well, it's, it's speculative. We, no one has a silver bullet for uh, measuring projects to success, but we want to try and improve as we go. And the, and the challenge is, is it's, is if you look at the stats in terms of successful projects, the way we measure them, we're not getting better at it, but projects are certainly getting bigger uh, and more complex and more complicated, Rich, back to your point. And so how do we then take the moving parts? And I like yeah, the idea project controls 101 is just decompose it, you know, try and try and package it up uh, to something that's quantifiable or something that's measurable, something that's realistic. Uh, and back to your point, Nat, something that we can measure, but the end date is obviously something. So I think, um, my 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 uh, my interpretation of that is time. Time is something that we need flexibility on. 
quality is something we should emphasize. And I think that's a really good point from both of you that we do need to figure out a way to um, redefine controls. Cause again, we're in project controls, right? So the, the element, the, the clue is in the title and yet when it comes out into the media, suddenly then it's polarized and you're not just dealing with the pressures of, of tasks and delivering the deliverables. You're dealing with the commercial sensitivities, your contractors, um, kind of the face of the, of the organization because these projects are projectified. They're their own organizations. And so there's no easy conversation about that. And I'm, I'm, treading, I'm treading light waters here before I say something about Crossrail that you probably can't comment on. So I'm going to hand over to Dale for the next comment. <laughs> Thanks, Val. It's fascinating listening in because, so first on your comment, Nat, EV is not boring. I love EV. <laughs> uh, Steve Wake will probably also um, mm. really give yes, you a thumbs up for, for promoting EV. So, so well done for that. But I find with EV that people rubbish it before they fully understand and appreciate what it can do. So that's probably one stumbling block. Totally what is it, Dale? Well, let's they explain it. What, it, what, it. what is earned value for? I mean, can someone give us an, an easy, what's their explanation? The easiest? Anyone? Dale, you want to go first? I, I'm happy to go first. It, for me, it's doing what project managers should be doing, measuring project performance in a set methodology. But the key thing is that I find, and a problem with any methodology, not just earned value, is that uh, often the um, basis of estimates going in to set that baseline are often not mature enough. And so people try and set an earned value management baseline for a multi-year, multi-billion, complex, complicated program at a detailed level, and they wonder why they fail, rather than trying to do it as Rich was trying to allude to, if you had stages and say, right, we know what we know in the next six to 12 months, let's detail plan that and measure mm -hmm. that. And when we get to the future work, we'll detail plan that, and let's measure it in the right way. And as an earned value advocate, I. I will say earned value is not for every single project, but you can adapt it and adopt it and use it effectively if everyone understands it. Now, the key challenge I always find is I, I spend most of my time um, when I come, come onto a project using earned value, educating people on what it can give them and how they can use it to make right decisions. And if we did that education piece, and I think you alluded to it, Val, the knowledge piece up front and prepared every for everyone for execution. It's almost like, you know, if we use sports analogies, train for match day, right? If you did all that training before match day, you'd be prepared to execute. But we don't do that. We, we go to bid, uh, contracts awarded, right, boom, let's go. Okay, now we have to set up earned value. Now we have to set up this. Now we have to construct the schedule. Why didn't we do that before we started delivering? So there's a whole big piece, and we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole there, but um, I'll, I'll come back around to it as well. And Rich, I think you want to comment well, on earned value. I, 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 okay, so um, for those people that know me, um, I, I'm like you, Dale. I'm quite passionate about earned value. And as far as I'm concerned, earned value um, and what it can offer isn't in dispute. You know, I mean, the maths of earned value and the techniques is, is fine. The only, the only way in which earned value ever goes wrong is when human beings get involved in it um, and, and just manage to make things a little bit more complicated stage by stage, you know, as you shoehorn more and more into it and you start measuring more and more complicated things, all of a sudden earned value takes on, on 
a level of complexity and you find yourself, you know, picking holes in, you know, what, you know, how accurate is my physical percent complete this period um, or how accurate is my, is my baseline? Um, you know, the earning uh, techniques um, and I've literally just written a document now for the team that I'm working with at the moment um, on the on the earning techniques that are available um, in a system that has a name a bit like a snake um, and and it essentially you know is an art form right um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's no, that's a movie and, and my friend sorry <laughs> <laughs> it, it requires uh, it requires people to, to understand um, much more about counting widgets and how you do that and, and uh, than, than just totting up the numbers. But that isn't the end of the story for earned value for me. You know, the big thing about earned value is the so what factor, right? And and getting people to understand what having uh, an, an estimate at completion low versus an estimate at completion high range really means and trying to convince them that you know when this voodoo piece of software slash calculation is telling them that they're going to be 20 percent over budget and they're going to be late by four months it's like you know trying to convince people of, of that is is often the hardest sell um and you know um i'll, I'll just call a spade a spade because you know anybody can um you know make a freedom of information request on on information from crossrail and if crossrail is good enough to give it to you you'll you'll see it um but you know month in month out on crossrail for for all of the four years i was there um we reported uh you know forecast information we reported uh first of all the p50 we then reported the p80 we then reported the p90 we then reported the estimate at completion low we reported the estimate at completion high so that's five different data points every four weeks on the forecast outturn cost for the program we didn't just report one you know we reported five different numbers uh, each period and we showed the trends of each of those numbers and whether or not some were going up and some were horizontal and you know some were up and down up and down up and down um, and so you know and on top of all of that uh, we also I remember uh, one chap I was working with um, he went around and uh, basically uh, did a straw poll of of all of the, the key players on, on Crossrail, senior project managers and, and executives, and just said to them, tell me how much gut feel Crossrail is going to cost. And so, you know, everyone writes down a number and, and it's the wisdom of crowds, right? It's the same theory as um, who wants to be a millionaire? Ask the audience, right? It's the wisdom of crowds. It's, yes. it's the phenomenon. And, and you know, the, the wisdom of the crowds coalesces on a number. And guess what? You know, the wisdom of the crowds had a number that was higher uh, than the than the P fifty number that we were reporting on Crossrail, um, so you know we never did just report one thing. We reported a whole range of things, but trying to convince people um, that you know the the P eighty, the P ninety five, uh, the EAC low, the EAC high, and the wisdom of crowns was all more realistic than the P fifty, which is what crossrail had to ultimately report on that's what we were, were required to report against the p50 number um you know that that can be a hard sell um and it wasn't until later in the program that you know everyone started to to hone in on the fact that the p50 was definitely no longer realistic we knew that you know um 
uh, well, it's flip of the coin, on. right? P50, flip of the coin. Well, yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. exactly. Um, I, I think <clears throat> we, we did an internal audit in 2017 that basically told us, you know, we're going to be much closer to the P80 number, but um, that was what we knew back then. So Yeah, exactly. No, it, it's fascinating. And just to comment on that before I come back to Nat, um, it, it, it's strange. We do have all of this various analytics available to us and, you know, computers can do it, tools can do it. Nat will tell us and do it very quickly. Um, but there is also a fact of um, Geigo, as Paul Googe calls it, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Um, so we have to account for that. But also I find that um, your stakeholders, your senior stakeholders, they are looking for one number. And yet you go, well, it's a project. You can't, I can't give you one number. But that comes back to culture again. And I want to bring that in to comment on culture um, before I come back to you, Rich, because for me, Nat, you've, you work with a lot of clients and you know the tool sets and the systems like the back of your hand. You can recommend amazing systems and amazing tools and bring them in. But I'm sure you've seen quite a lot of cultural setups and that plays quite a big part in how those tools are utilized and how the information coming out of them is accepted, used and used to make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, coming back maybe a little bit to Val's question around KPIs, is there a way to measure culture? That's probably a huge psychological rabbit hole we'll go down. But just, I guess, from your um, experience working with different clients, mm -hmm. have you come across particular types of cultures that are, I guess, better geared up to use the metrics around them? And if you have, what are some of those signs that those listening can go, okay, that's wrong and this is right and I can see it now? Yeah. It's an interesting one because our clients or my clients kind of really kind of cover the spectrum. So, you know, small projects will use our tools. Large projects will use our tools. Um you know, aerospace and defense, rail, and they're all driven by kind of different requirements. So if we have like an aerospace and defense, it's a combine, it, there's, there's, there's that moment that for the project teams, it's so black and white what they need to do. It kind of takes out some of the um, gray area because it's, it, and that's exactly it, isn't it? Because there is a right way that they want that project to be delivered. They being kind of, you know, all the mandates that come down from specific aerospace and defense. And so everybody is on the same page because the page is written out for them. And it's quite clear what they will be required to do. And because the powers that be who are then reviewing that one number or the multiple numbers, um, even if you're right at the very bottom, so you're a planner all the way right up to kind of heads of project controls or MDs of clients that are delivering on behalf of another client, etc. It's so consistent all the way through that everybody knows what they need to do. And sometimes that's really helpful, but it doesn't really 
kind of open the door for people to use initiative or to try things in a different way because it has been kind of really scripted so it's almost that piece that if you followed the ingredients you've followed the recipe you've cooked it in an oven and everything has been followed you should get a perfect cake out the other end and if the cake doesn't come out perfect at the other end it isn't anybody's problem because we did it all together and everybody knew what they were doing so there was no that is very difficult to do a finger blame but it's also very difficult for and for somebody to kind of put their head above the parapet because you again that kind of let's try something a bit different so it can get really kind of segmented and it can get really stringent but those types of implementations are really quick because everybody knows what they need to have ready to be successful and they know that at every single level within their organization what that success looks like um and then you can go for other clients that are trying to do things on best practice. So we want to deliver our projects. And it, it, it's interesting because sometimes you'll listen and you're implementing something and people are still discussing kind of fundamental planning processes. And how am I going to attach my CVS to my OVS to my WVS? Um, and it's fine. It's, it's just at some point you do have to stop get something down on paper, get something implemented, test it and move on. So, you know, that kind of more agile waterfall effect. And But the piece that's the same is consistency and everybody realising what success looks like. What does that cake look like when it comes out of the oven? And how do we get to that point quickly without procrastinating um, kind of and does that go against what you said though Dale so you know when it's like oh we just want to get into the project and now we're going to set up our processes sometimes you kind of just need to get something down and just see how successful you can be um, and then adapt to change as you're going because change is inevitable and I think that's the piece here that we that probably needs more addressing is that projects change and the speed in which you respond to that change um is a key piece because if your project is what 10% out 20% out and you don't capture that quick enough mm. then your end date is out regardless of how much you throw at it it's really difficult to get some of your projects back so I don't know if I'm kind of waffling there, no it's it's fantastic consist consistency is and, and getting everybody to understand if I say kind of estimate at complete versus estimate to complete versus remaining budget you know and getting that, those real fundamentals that everybody knows what that means how to use it because that's the other thing that you were talking about Dale when we talked about earned value and getting to one number but everybody always wants different reports everybody wants well maybe we should have this piece of data maybe mm. we should have this piece of data and so the, this bottom layer everybody wants everything and then by the time you get to the top they want kind of just that one number so there's a lot of stuff that's lost in the middle but if you don't do anything with your own value and I've heard this a lot not in the last kind of five years but definitely a lot earlier oh we're spending so much time getting to this earned value number and we don't have time to respond to it and why are we spending all of this time doing it it's mm. the difference between earned value and earned value management and if you're not managing your project then there is no point doing earned value. So you might as well just go for the 70%. I've done this. I think I'm about right. Um, because as you say, or as Richard said, the, um, what do you got the, the, when you went and did the straw man, you had to turn for it. And I can't remember what it is now, but that does actually work. You know, the vast majority of people and getting asked the audience what they think there's going to happen, you know, people's experience and gut feel does come into play as well. Um, 
but you know if you don't if you want to have everybody on the same page they have to have something in black and white they have to know what success is it does come down to uh cultural adoption and stakeholder engagement and perhaps we need to be a little bit more open to and flexible to the cake might look different and yeah. if it does, is that a problem? As long as we can eat it. <laughs> I love that you bring up cake because, you know, Val's birthday we mentioned. Oh, yeah. So thanks again, Val. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Val, for the cake. Uh, but no, uh, I'm glad you challenged, you know, the whole balance of how prepared you need to go into, into delivery versus how much you should learn on the project. Because we had um, on, our, on our last pod, um, we spoke about uh, change management and what the influences are as well. So we had a, a, a big sort of discussion around that. And there's so many different elements to culture. But if I if I jump to Rich quickly, just one of the questions that came in from one of our listeners um, via LinkedIn was pointed around culture. Has the culture changed on Crossrail? And that, you would assume, means that the culture was bad. But I don't necessarily think that it's bad because a project goes wrong. Um, I wonder if you could comment on that, Rich. Uh, I can comment, but I can't comment in totality. So what I can tell you is that um, I, I did many presentations on the culture, the evolution of the culture on Crossrail, because when Crossrail first came together, uh, you had Crossrail Limited, uh, and they then employed Bechtel and Transcend as their delivery partners and, and program partners. Uh, and for the first few years, it did not work. Um, you know, the, uh, the parties uh, did not function particularly well as a team. Uh, and the NAO audit report does pick up on this point. Um, you know, in, I can't remember the year, someone will have to correct me, 2011, 2010, I can't remember when it was, 2012 maybe, um, the decision was made that we had a lot of great people uh, on the programme uh, and so we'll just put them, um, you know, best fit for the role um, and forget the the contracting boundary lines and, and you know, Crossrail Transcendent Bechtel basically came together and became one organisation, you know, Crossrail. Um, and from that point on, uh, you know, the culture really started to, to improve. Crossrail got a new branding, a new identity. Um, its purpose was much more clearly understood. Um, you know, they had the strap line, moving London forward, uh, three simple words uh, that people could remember. And they really, you know, coalesced on, on one coherent um, uh, purpose for the, for the organisation. And that's a powerful thing. Um, I joined the program in 2015, and as I said at the beginning of this podcast, it was the best, um, you know, three, three and a half, almost four years um, that I've had in my in my program career to date. And that was because the culture that I was working in from top to bottom was an extremely supportive culture. You know, you're, you're sitting in um, uh, executive meetings, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the room. Um, and uh, to have, you know, um, the program director say, I want to hear what this person got to say. Um, no, no, no. Let that person speak. Um, you know, it's it's a, a positive reinforcement environment. Um, but you asked me, has the has the culture changed on Crossrail? Well, I left at the end of 2018. And so I, I can't comment on the on the post Crossrail culture. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that um, the last three years um, have probably been the hardest three years on the Crossrail. Uh, and I'll be uh, extremely surprised um, if the culture 
um, hasn't undergone a significant transformation. No, that's that, that's fair. And, you know, I, I, I know you, you're trying to be as candid as you can, so I appreciate that as well. Um, but I, like I say, we, we got these questions in and it just, you know, sort of alludes to, to certain aspects. And I do wonder sometimes people's views on, uh, you know, sometimes people jump to conclusions on what the root cause for what is seen as failure is. And yes, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's um, perhaps control systems, or sometimes it's the application thereof, or it could be a host of things. Um, but I don't. Think I mean, the one thing, the one thing I do know, Dale, is you know, for the for the time that I was there, uh, I was surrounded by um, some of the most capable people um, I've I've worked with, both in the supply chain uh, and in the and in the management team in the client organisation. Um, you know, some extremely capable people, um, and you know, as I said earlier, uh, I'll defend Crossrail um, and the program and and where it's at to, to anyone that wants to throw rocks at it. Um, you know, if if those if that crowd of people that I was working with um, couldn't deliver the program successfully, uh, I think you'd be extremely lucky um, to go out and, and find um, another organisation, another team that could have done it um, and got Crossrail completed in December 2018. Um, that's one of those we'll never know. Yeah, but uh, that's what I firmly that's what I firmly believe. No, well put, and thank you for for adding that. But Val, please jump in. Yeah, Rich, I'm not going to throw rocks, but I might throw some paper planes if that's all right. Um, I, you know, just going back on a few points you mentioned, you know, uh, not phone a friend, but you know, asking the masses of their input for planning. So, yeah. I'd like for people who probably don't know that method, um, planning poker. It's, it's a very good method of getting people to just give their gut feel of what's happening. It's a really good way of dealing with things. Uh, back to earn value, Nat, you mentioned as well, you know, what well, two pet peeves, I mean, I'm an I'm advocate for earn value as well um, when it's applied properly. And I think we alluded to the fact that if you're not going to change behavior when you see the indications, then, then it's not really going to work for you or your project. Uh, but two things that bother me and probably every day on a project is, is the basis of estimate and the rules of credit around how you actually collect progress. I think, you know, as lagging indicators, those have to be pretty accurate uh, or yeah. at least have some methodology and, and logic behind them uh, so that you can understand and appreciate how close you are. And then there's those, those forward indicators where you're going to the project manager and you're saying, give me your estimate to complete. And you're comparing that to some statistical analysis, which is generally based on lagging indicators. So it all comes down to garbage in, garbage out, like Paul Goodge, our friend says, uh, Gago. And I just wanted to mention that, but the volume of change as well on mega projects makes earn value very difficult because you're always trying to update the PMB. So if we're constantly changing things, it makes it a very difficult um, system to, even if you're using good software, uh, there's still a manual point of entry. There's still processes and approvals. It, it does get very, very complicated and very difficult because then you're running multiple baselines, multiple reports. So that you, you mentioned four, but you're probably doing that for, baseline one two and three um there's probably an escalated version a de-escalated version uh there's probably one in the middle somewhere there's one with bca bcrs implemented there's one without you end up getting very complex and i can see it from an executive's point of view it's like it's too much and i think there's still there's still a bit of way a bit of evolution to go in software to simplify that experience for executives they're getting hammered 
at every single level. And I think I'll just go to the, the final points. You're talking about culture and how this integrates into that is you know, from my simple view and my observation actually on mega projects is and particularly rail because it's such a beast uh, is leadership is like you mentioned, obviously the culture in Crossrail is it was probably a good one because of the leadership to allow people to speak, to have an open forum, um, to get people's opinions. Uh, but also I think leadership's role of managing the climate. And that's usually the top down climate rather than the bottom up climate. So protecting your teams from the craziness that happens at the very high levels of these hierarchies and the political pressures that they're under. Uh, there's something to be said around those leaders who maintain that pressure and internalize it rather than distributing it to their teams. And it's very easy to vent and complain. And, you know, my boss is a dick and he's doing this. And, you know, why are they doing that when they should be doing this? And especially when we're passionate about certain methodologies, I think certainly we can, we can get on the negative bandwagon, but I think a leader, a real leader in these mega projects should be maintaining that, 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 I guess that buffer between the pressures of their bosses and bosses and how their teams um, perform. And is that something you saw on Crossrail? I just wanted to check that that's how you saw it. One, 100% Val. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't mind uh, calling him out. You know, Simon Wright was the, was the program director uh, when I joined the program. Um, and in the last uh, six months that um, for my time on the program, uh, he was also the, the chief executive. Um, one of the most supportive uh, program directors I've ever worked in, um, protected the organization, protected the people below, um, created that um, buffer between uh, the stakeholder politics uh, with TFL, RFL um, and uh, sponsors and, and, you know, between that and the organization. Um, I never, I never witnessed, um, you know, bad behaviors from either Simon or uh, the rest of the executive team. Um, I, I heard, you know, um, some stories about some arguments in, in the boardroom from time to time, but God, you've got to expect that. Um, but, you know, uh, ultimately, um, there's a reason why I said it's one of the best programs I've ever worked on because, you know, those behaviors uh, were the kind of behaviors that uh, any one of us would be um, uh, privileged to, to get to, to experience and work in. I mean, the thing is about behaviours, right? You know it when you see it. And, you know, I can't necessarily describe it to you, um, but I knew um, the, uh, the behaviours uh, from day one of me joining Crossrail uh, from, the, from the senior leadership team were the kind of behaviours that um, uh, every major programme um, would, be, would be proud to, to have. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And the, I guess the next question is probably around data and we'll get Nat in this as well is so, and comment where you can and where you can't, you can just tell me to shove off. But what, what exactly is Crossrail's approach to dealing with all that data? You've got a lot of information, obviously. Uh, it's cascaded down, then it's bottom up, I guess. And you're compiling that into reports. Is, is there some takeaways at least positive ones that you could or even negative yeah. ones that you could you could talk about so so actually right because crossrail is such a, a long program um you know in its 12th year and counting now um 
we talked earlier about the development of systems during the life uh, of the project itself. Um, and I sometimes have to pinch myself that Crossrail, you know, predated uh, BIM. You remember when UK government said, you know, uh, all projects have to be BIM level two by 2016. Right. Yeah, well, Crossrail was like, you know, up and running, you know, six, seven years uh, before, uh, before that deadline was in place. Um, and so our systems were actually... Uh, fairly straightforward um, you know we we had uh, planning um, we had cost management um, we had our change management system uh, we had our risk management system um, and they were all uh, linked into a common data warehouse um, and one thing I'm really proud of um, and one of the lessons that you know I like to evangelize to, to anyone who'll listen um, is you know we got to a point where with um, with absolute fluency on Crossrail, um, that four-weekly drumbeat where the project teams update their information at their end, it comes into the systems, the systems get locked down. We in the centre did our assurance and review and checks, made sure that everything you know added up. Uh, no one had slapped on an extra couple of noughts anywhere. Um, you know, dealt with all of that. And then we published from the center um, a consistent data set back out to all the projects so we did not have project teams creating their own little dashboards um, we basically published data rich dashboards back to the projects and the projects put their commentary on it that gave us um, absolute consistency in the way in which data was presented but look at today's world right you know uh, we had clickview um, as the as the business intelligence application never used it once i never used it once um, we we did not have any business intelligence software power bi is all the rage today um, you know everybody wants uh, you know a, a good business intelligence platform and you know it's absolutely great and, and program i'm working on right now we're implementing power bi um, but we never had any of that on on crossrail what we did was we took a consistent data set from the data warehouse uh, and once we had that data set um, we generated our uh, our visuals, our performance management information um, using uh, using Excel. Um, I had one extremely smart person working for me who ran my performance analysis unit. Um, there wasn't anything that um, she couldn't do with Excel. Um, and uh, yeah, we, um, we generated some really um, comprehensive uh, analytics consistently across the program. Um, and so, yeah, that, that is how we how we managed the data. Um, I hope that answers your question, Val. I kind of have lost sight of what you asked me. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. I was just I was just wondering how you dealt with the volume. And you know, it it does sound like from your perspective, Richard, maybe because you're an optimistic guy, maybe I don't know. Um, but you had you had uh, you know pre-BIM, and I think we, we should all recognize the fact that you know we're going to have on these big projects, we're going to have new technology introduced. And that's a new complexity to project controls is how do you get new technology in and, and remove obsolescent kind of technology. And that presents a problem itself. I don't know if you've ever tried to introduce a new tool to a, to an audience. It's a very difficult thing to do. And maybe I'll get Nat to comment on that in a second, but the other We're thing doing is it right now, aren't we Nat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is like, you've got, it sounds like you had everything in place. So we had, you know, you had your systems and tools linked. You had a four-week drumbeat. You had a single source of truth. You had consistent reporting. Yet, 
you know, the media paints this as, you know, and this could be misconstrued, but as, as a failure, as late, as over budget, um, as misdirected. They, they, so they paint, they paint the project as, as failed because it's late and it's spending more money. Right. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, no one's ever said project controls was a failure. Um, no one's ever said change control was a failure. No one's ever said Crossrail produced low quality reports. Um, and you know, there's a reason why we were so passionate about putting everything onto the onto the learning legacy website, and that was because every single one of the authors was really proud of the quality of the of the material that they produced. Um, and I I actually put it front and center on the on the controls learning legacy. One of the key lessons learned: produce the best quality information you possibly can, because good quality information, well presented is a confidence builder exactly you, and it creates you present, you present right information but in a really naff way you don't inspire confidence you invite people to to question things um or you know worse still people just ignore what you're producing because it doesn't look very good yeah yeah but you exactly. produce it in a high quality way in a readable way and that's why you know project controls is an art form because it's not just about being able to produce the graph at the end of the day. It's about being able to, to translate it into information that people are willing to engage with. You'll never win everyone. You'll never get everyone to engage. Um, but, you know, uh, those that can do it well get an audience. Um, and, you know, I remember going to a lecture where uh, a guy was talking about attention being a commodity uh, that you have to try and grab. Um, and that's what a good project controls um, person does. You know, they they grab the attention of the people around them and and you know get them to listen. Um, and hundred percent. I'm not saying we 100%. were always successful at that, but you know, that's that's what we aspire to do. Mm-hmm. Nat, do you want to jump in there? No, I was just going to agree because um, if you've got flaky reports, people don't. The first thing that people come back with is the data is wrong and if the conversation in the meeting is about justifying the data then the conversation is not about changing the project to get back on track and as Richard says if people when you're in a meeting and the attention is based on this is the situation what are we doing next that's when a project changes and moves forward if the conversation Mm -hmm. is about well history is wrong and that's where we're going to focus then you're not going to change anything if all you're doing is trying to justify history rather than kind of you know respond to what's going to happen in the future um and and yeah that kind of that consistency the audit process you know the belief that what you're looking at is the truth and getting there much quicker so that nothing's ever um up for debate on that is always a good start yeah, that's yeah i mean i'm going through that kind of exercise right now i mean i'm working with a, uh, a chap at the moment who i've got in um i think you guys know him well um dave every project needs a dave i can tell you that um straight away um and, and we're going through a data fix right now. You know, we're, we're looking to address, um, you know, some of our underlying issues uh, in the systems that we've got. It's not the, it's not the issue with the system. It's the issue with uh, Geiger, um, as, as you said earlier. And, and we've just got to systematically go through and, and fix that and give ourselves a, a solid platform to, to work from. 
And there's yeah, a culture exactly. thing as well there. Just because the data is wrong doesn't mean it's anybody's fault. We've got to, I think we really need to move away from this blame culture that we have. That instead of people holding on to it for dear life, because my way is correct. And just kind of being open to the fact that there are different ways of doing it. And or perhaps the project needs you to do something in a different way and kind of adopting change and kind of, you know, instead of like cloistering your way in a corner, I'm going to make my own dashboard. and I'm going to do it my way. And then, you know, and kind of being more receptive to um, kind of sharing and changing and a bit more of a kumbaya moment, maybe, um, you know, that's, that's not I, a bad I thing. Another good comment from that. I think uh, I agree. And I even go one step further is the victim culture as well. I think there's two, there's the blame culture. Then there's, I can't possibly change it. It's all happening to me. Why, why isn't my boss or that team fixing it for me? Why aren't the engineers supporting us? I think it's up to everybody to, to take that um, internal leader position and, and make the change they want to see, especially on big projects. It takes a big team and it takes everyone to be involved. And I think a lot of the time they'll pick out particular people and, and we, we, we just point the finger but then also everyone blames the systems you know well the systems don't talk to each other but there's always a way around and nothing's 100 percent, as you said rich which is which is a fantastic point um but but nat i think as well we, we talked about obs obsolescent technology and the future in previous pods so check out Nat's previous pods we did talk about the future but also the application of this on on projects that span you know longer than a decade uh, -huh. uh you know rich is talking about pre-bim you know, now BIM's exciting and it's that visual management piece and it's great for engineering design. Um, but would you ever go back and the, the risk associated with applying that backwards to a project that's already past design, for example, like what benefits do they have and how do they do that? How do they implement new, new software into a, a big project like Crossrail? Gosh, I mean. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, we get, we, you often get customers that will come in that will say, you know, we need to put in a piece of software because we've got a new project and they'll start it on a, on a new project. And then some of the historical ones will say, oh, I quite, I quite like that. I might like to have a, have a crack at putting that on some historical stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm going to say the vast majority will be new new projects based on the lessons learned from projects that are running at the moment because there is um for, for what it is that i do and what we sell it is all about the future and mm. putting too much emphasis on the historical past is hard so you know focusing on how data should come together and why data should come together because the amount of conversations that we have about well you could do that but why would you want to why do you want to overcomplicate something because there's a truckload of information there and sometimes you do need to see the wood for the trees um and doing it slowly so that's the other that's the other piece um you know moving away from that big bang moment again supporting culture making small changes that build confidence in people that what they're seeing is correct that managing to whichever number you've provided does see improvement in the future and seeing those small baby steps that's how you get people to change um, and what we also see is the culture of people that have worked on mega projects taking that to the next project that they've got so you know there's going to be large projects out there crossrail having to kind of BIM stuff on 
what's the value that it's going to kind of bring because potentially it could just also derail something if you because every everything stops while we just recalibrate but time is still ticking costs are still kind of spiraling and so on and so forth so i don't know different companies will do it in different ways and a lot of it will come down from the ultimate client if the ultimate client says to you thou must do this sometimes you have no choice but to do that that was thou not val <laughs> no, I hear you. Yeah, I one more. I'll give you. I'll give you my two cents on that. Right, it, it very much depends on you know the client's understanding of what it is they're actually asking for. Right, because some clients know that putting in a system mid-flight is going to cause problems, but they're enlightened about it and are prepared to to experience the pain for the long-term gain. Uh, unfortunately, there are plenty of clients who, you know, say they want a system and then turn around and say, right, um, you've got um, three months um, and that's it and, and it'll all be perfect. Um, that's kind of what I said to Natalie when I first started working with her a year ago. You know, I don't think I even <laughs> gave you three months. I think I gave you eight weeks. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Magic but, one time. Um, <laughs> exactly. um, Motivation sticks. But, perfect. I mean, so, so one of the things that I certainly wanted to come out on this podcast and, and one of the reasons why uh, I, I wanted to accept uh, Nat's um, sort of encouragement to, to come and talk about this stuff is because, um, to me, the combination of um, software vendors working alongside their um, user community um, is how you get the best developments in whatever platform it is that you're looking at. I don't care whether it's a cost management system or a risk system or a planning system. Um, you know, all too often we see developments in software um, happening because um, the software teams are basically just working through their own bug fix list of things that you know they've had on their to-do list for a long period of time. Whereas, in fact, the user community is crying out for you know certain functionality. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I've, I've really wanted to promote. Um, I, I learned it on Crossrail um, and I'm carrying that ethos into, into my current working relationships. Um, getting closer um, to the people who supply us with the tools that we use on a daily basis so that I can try to directly influence how those tools are developed in the near future, not in 10 years time, but, you know, um, I mean, Natalie uh, will attest, uh, you know, we had a, a conversation about the fact that, uh, and we've talked on this podcast about earned value, um, earned schedule um, is, a, is, a, is a more um, uh, communicative way of describing how late you are on the program. Earned value tells you that you're, uh, you know, 500,000 pounds late. Well, that doesn't really mean very much to, to some project managers. They would much rather you told them that they're six months late because at least then you're communicating in the right units. Um, and so, you know, we've had conversations about how do we make this accessible through the platforms um, that, you, you know, you're wanting to use. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, that's incumbent upon all people who are fortunate enough, and I've been one of them, um, who, who have large budgets available to them on projects with a lot of influence and a lot of time in front of them where we can sit down and get some fundamental um, inputs into, into how software um, is developed. Um, and that interplay, I think, is, um, is a critical relationship for the industry going forward. 
Yeah, I've, I've, well, I, I might have some, let's talk future, future then around software and, and project controls, future, future being like, I don't know how far away this is, but do you think proprietary software has a time limit? When I say that I'm talking about some observations, I spent a lot of time thinking about data, um, probably more than most, probably as much as you know. Um, and one of the things I've noticed, particularly with data scientists and data engineers is that um, once you train a machine, um, you can actually convince yourself that one system could literally do everything. So let's presume that the only limitation to software is inputs, right? We said quality in, quality out, um, parameters, estimates, schedule information, rules of credit for progress, contract structuring, um, delivery partners through machine learning and some of the, I don't profess to be an expert in data science, but I do shout out to all my guys uh, that are in that space who are working in project controls now starting to get in there. Where do you see proprietary software? Cause not all of them play nice. Um, but when, where do you see the limit or are they all going to flip over to providing a one size fits all? And I'll probably go with Nat first and then I'll ask Richard to comment. Thanks. Um. See, I think it would be a very sad world if it was one size fits all, because um, I think just the sheer fact that there's so much kind of diversity in different types of projects and what people, you know, what that cake looks like at the end. There's lots of different kind of kind of looks and feels. And I think, you know, with what Richard was just saying about kind of working with your vendor to ensure that um, things are developed in a way that kind of works for for your project um if it was a one one shop one stop one product then it's kind of one one way and i don't necessarily think you know that competitions piece that you know we're a software vendor and there are other tools out there and we all probably do a lot that's very very similar and then there are elements of our software that is not similar and you know when choosing your software provider um, you're choosing more than just the capability of the of the tool set um, and it's those nuances I think that gives people um, options to try things kind of differently and gives us change and you know if all of a sudden I think it would be great if everybody's products did play well with each other but I think if I hark back to my original kind of podcast it's not always the project sometimes it's data structures and data not coming together particularly well and I know if I were my colleagues from other software vendors um, that do what I do we all see those same issues and I think kind of the future of software can go in one of two ways it can either be you know these modular approaches when it does planning and risk and change and cost and it's part of an ERP system and it's attached to your expenses and it knows when people are going on holiday, you know, that everything in one place. Um, or we could look at saying, you know, how does a data cube come together and choose the best of breeds to work with that and put the focus on making sure that the process and the people um, know what they're doing with the best of breeds. So I don't know. Well, I think only time will tell, but it would be sad to lose the competition because it's the competition that drives innovation. And you're not going to get innovation if everybody's using one thing because there's no 
you know there's no one-upmanship there's no keeping up with the joneses there's no kind of like oh look at my sparkly new because everybody's using the same what do you think rich um so I've, I've been down this journey before right so um when i was at parsons brinkerhoff um internally in order to manage our projects we had a, in the uk we were running a portfolio of like 100 150 different projects some of them as small as a ten thousand pound afternoon inspection commission in a power plant others you know big major program like the east london line um but you know the company was was looking for a one-stop shop um portal that could manage all of its projects from an internal perspective um and we and that that's the road that we went down and ultimately uh it was a it was a painful road um i'd like to think that we had some success but you know developing that one-stop shop solution um is is painful and the problem is with a one-stop shop solution even when you get to being good sooner or later someone else is going to come along with something better and the minute that you have to try to change horses um or you know relicense something um it can be very difficult to to get out of that relationship with that one-stop shop solution so you know the trend that i see is that big projects out there like a crossrail or a transpenine or a hinkley or an hs2 they tend to take the approach that they pick and choose the right software applications for the right piece of function and knit them together in a systems architecture with some, you know, uh, business intelligence um, sitting over the top of them. But yeah. consultancy practices, going back to the Parsons Brinkhoff example, and also, you know, um, business that I, I currently work with and, and others that I've worked with in the past, they tend not to, to take that approach. They tend to coalesce around or try to coalesce around uh, around one system. And I don't know, um, I don't necessarily know why that is, um, but I'm in agreement with Nat that I think, you know, I don't see, you know, the one-stop shop solution being um, the the VHS that beats the Betamax. Um, I, I think that we'll, we'll have good, high quality um, package solutions that have a specific purpose um, that will sit inside a data architecture. I think that will be the, the way for, for some time to come. Because of course, if you do it that way, you always have the option to, to switch in, switch out. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, oh, you got some more. Without, without right. it going no, I was also going to so switch in, switch out, but then also inject something net new because there is always something new. I mean, I'm going to drop a product name in here, but, you know, Fuse was pretty new when Dan brought that out. And it's now not that new, but there'll be another product that comes out that's kind of like, ooh, and you've got to have space in your architecture and in your project and in your process to be able to put in something like some a game changer that comes out so it's not just always swapping in swapping out sometimes you want to put something brand new in there and i agree yeah. i think that. i think that's my premise the premise is that if the machine learns and you provide the inputs to the machine and things become uh, relevant and new like i think some companies are still discovering fuse even though it's been around for so long uh and they're going oh this is a great tool we should use this on future projects uh, but maybe it's, it's we should save this for a great debate on on systems and tools and where machine learning is going. Maybe get Dev from NPlan and Dan Patterson from Innate 
and and, you, and some project controls guys and maybe even David Pulford if he can make it um, and really talk about what, what would machine learning do to the industry? Because I still think it'd be a competitive market. You'd have different types of machine learning perhaps, but the idea would be that a bit like Watson from Iron Man, where you would have someone providing input and then having access to all the information on that company, benchmarks of projects. So we know we, we spoke to Deb from NPlan. They're doing some pretty interesting stuff with, let's call it machine learning for scheduling. I think that's the first benchmark off the press. Uh, this is future, future. Like when I say future, future, I mean like it's out there somewhere. But I love to, I love to spitball ideas with with people who know what they're talking about. And and I, I appreciate your, your comments because uh, it's an interesting one to postulate that that perhaps maybe one day. Um, it, we have an Alexa in a room and we tell her or him or whatever it is, the machine, what the inputs are and how we want them configured and what we want to look like and maybe get out of the, the four week rut that we get in these four week drum beats. Um, I'm not sure why we think that's the best way to report, but currently it is, we do a two week, two week, right? We do two weeks of updates, two weeks of getting reports ready. And that's, that's pretty synonymous across all major projects, but I'm not convinced that that's the best way to report. And I think we've had someone else on, what was it Paul or Al Seminite or someone who talked about whether we could break the business rhythm? Um, I think, you know, arguably the quicker we get information, which we're certainly seeing with technology, the quicker we can report. The only, the only uh, limiting or the only friction on that is quality. And my last comment, I'll hand over to Dale because I'm sure he's got some comments as well, is narrative. So we talk about data all the time, right? When we talk about data, we're talking about charts, figures, statistical analysis, you know, having great performance analysts, uh, Richard, but we don't talk about the narrative. Now, when quality drops, my personal opinion is it's actually around how people describe one, what the problem is and two, what they're doing about it. Because obviously we're, we're, we're being indicated there's some performance issue. How do we fix the narrative? And, and have you had experienced quality issues in the storytelling piece on your projects? So Crossrail as well. Rich, I'll go with you first, if that's all right. Uh, well, definitely. I mean, so first of all, you, you mentioned how uh, could we ever break the business cycle? We actually talked about doing this in 2017. So, you know, our periodic reporting, you know, we were we were producing high quality board reports um, every four weeks. But of course, you know, one uh, period every year, no one reads it because it's Christmas. Um, and so, you know, we still produce the report, um, but, uh, you know, essentially we kind of, you know, skipped a reporting period. Um, and I remember having conversations about why don't we just, you know, move to, to bi-monthly um, or even just quarterly reporting. Um, and, you know, there was, a, there was a reception for that, but ultimately it didn't happen because, you know, we were just in the rhythm and, and that's, how, that's how it operates. But we were certainly willing to have the conversation. Um, and I definitely think there are, you know, better ways of reporting. Um, your question, you know, have we experienced drops in quality of reporting? Uh, well, yes, we have. I mean, several, um, I think at least three times I recall in, in my time on Crossrail, um, we had to set projects backwards um, so, you know, we suddenly realized that they were not at 75% complete. Uh, they were actually only on reflection at 67% complete at best. So, you know, going through the pain of resetting a project without resetting the baseline and forcing the overall program percentage completion backwards, because that particular project, you know, we had just been honest with ourselves and had reflected it, um, you know, 
yeah i mean but that's that's part of you know what integrity is um mm-hmm. you know you have to call out bad quality when you when you see it Matt, did you want to did you want to comment um i think a lot of clients um that we've heard is sometimes it's not the um the reporting quality that's lost sometimes it's the kind of the projects and that it's the projects the people or the projects appetite for consuming that kind of of project um so there's times I've been on there with clients and they said but we had this 10 years ago why have we not got this now and just through change of people change of leadership change of projects you know some good practices have fallen by the wayside been replaced by something else that something else maybe never had that same longevity and so you end up kind of in this reporting cycle where you know they tried something new and it didn't work and then 10 years later we're kind of back to implementing something and there's always been somebody there that's been there for 15 years that said but we used to do this Mm. and again but is change a bad thing I don't know because people still want to so sometimes that report quality it might not be that it's falling it's just that it's just changed and it and perhaps needs to be changed back to something else yeah, no, another great points. I think it's very similar to um, maybe what's happened with COVID where, uh, you know, the working week has changed and, you know, the office presenteeism has changed because of something significant. It's ultimately uh, shifted our entire value set. And now I don't think we'll ever go back to a full working week in the office, certainly not in Australia. And there are companies now trialing uh, four-day work weeks. So we are shifting away from the nine to five. We are shifting away from always being in the office uh, like you said, change isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, but it might take it might take a massive motivator uh, for the month, you know, the four week cycle to change, for example. Uh, but really good input, Dale. I've talked too much. So it's you, mate. <laughs> I love it. I'll, I'll 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 throw in a few comments there. You spoke about data, and I think it was with uh, Dr. Alexia Nalewick where we spoke about critical thinking, and we were speaking That's about right. how, you yes. know, um, data rich we are, but information poor. And go back and listen to that one. But I think it was your one, Nat, when we spoke about having a tool belt rather than, you know, sort of one size fits all. And maybe it's that playbook or tool belt or toolkit that we need access to to go, this project is uh, characterized by X. So what do we apply to this rather than trying to make it fit in the box? Uh, Rich, I think you're trying to do it, um, but I'm going to call it out straight away. Nat is amazing to work with. Um, I think it was about 10, no, honestly, 10 years ago, I think it was, it wasn't even your direct product, Nat. And we, you know, you heated the call. We're like, we can't do this, come out. And there you were. So anyone that's worked with Nat, um, she is truly amazing. Uh, And then Rich, you teed us up perfectly for the next podcast. We don't often announce the next podcast on, uh, on a, on the previous podcast, but we're actually speaking to Walt Lipka, the creator of Earn Schedule on the next episode. Ah, So Stay tuned for that one, and we'll talk about earn schedule and everything we can do there. But I think that for me, the, the whole takeaway of this entire podcast, and you said it already, Rich, everyone needs a Dave on their project. And I think we need multiple Daves on our projects. So if nothing else, listeners, take that is the takeaway. Find a Dave. Doesn't matter who it is. If your surname's Pulford, then that's even better. But like, just get a Dave on your project and everything will be hundreds. <laughs> so that, that's sort of my comments. 
Um, I want to jump into the feature because this is the, the real fun bit where we challenge our guests uh, in, in, a, in a fun way. Um, and I, I'm not going to um, sort of lead into it because we've got Martin in the background there, our in-house oracle. So Martin, if you wouldn't mind uh, coming off mute. I'm and... suddenly nervous. <laughs> it's we, called... didn't do, we didn't do this last time. This we didn't. Deep. It's a surprise for you as well, Nat. But uh, Martin, over to you to explain what happens. Uh, it, it's all new. It's a little feature we're, we're trialing out. It's called uh, Defend the Indefensible. Um, so it's, um, it's where I, I read a statement and you have to defend it for 30 seconds. Um, it's inspired by some of the stuff we've all kind of heard over the years, uh, some of the ridiculous comments you've all probably been privy to uh, at some point in your in your past careers. Um, so if you're both willing, um, I've got one statement for each of you. Um, so yeah, if you're both willing and keen, let's let's make a start. You can go first. This could be this could be a disaster. <laughs> okay, Rich, um, you have thirty seconds to defend the following statement. The Treasury were far better estimators for mega projects than any engineers or project managers ever could be. Discuss. Well, of course, they're far better estimators because they know how to actually put an estimate together that will get buy-in from public support. I mean, if you ask engineers <laughs> to put an estimate together, you'll get something akin to you know a real life estimate but that's absolutely useless to to no man what you really need is a is a political driven estimate that will win the hearts and minds of people um to be able to get projects off the ground that is how true estimating is done that is that is that's 30 seconds gotta be right there that was brilliant get this man a red bus and a football player I can see how painful that was as well. <laughs> so well done. Thanks a lot. Thanks for being such a good sport there. Uh, okay, on, on to you, Nat. Um, your statement. So speaking to project managers is a far more reliable, esti reliable estimating tool for EACs than any earned value management software. Discuss. It's about gut feel, isn't it? I mean, these project managers, they've got experience, they've done this, they've seen it. And let's face it, narrative and discussion and getting the measure of a person and building your credibility against their range of experience. We, we've talked about kind of, you know, herd immunity as well as herd knowledge. And if anything, we should always be more believable in who we work with because we work with them, we rely on them, and human beings discussing stuff together is always going to come out at the right point at some point. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Amazing. Nat, you, well, you're, not, yeah, you're not in sales, are you, Matt? Nat? No, no. <laughs> I'm not in sales. <laughs> Brilliant. That That's great. fantastic. I love that. Uh, we could chat for literally hours and hours and hours on many topics. I love, I, I, I think the two of you are two of the most passionate people we've had on the podcast. And I really thank you for that. Um, it's been, it's been such great fun. As we head to the end of the podcast, I just want to come to each of you for some final thoughts, perhaps to leave the listeners with. I'll come to you first, Nat. Um, so I, I'm going to hark on the comment that Richard talked about that get to know your software vendor. Um, I've had, I've been here for 12 years, so I don't kind of like sell something and scurry away into the distance. If I don't deliver, you can still find me. But 
I think the success for being here for such a long time is that my clients do come and find me and we work through things together. And the end of my conversation doesn't finish with, and how much software are you going to buy today? The conversation is, what are we going to do today on our journey to success? And I really wish more people would be less threatened about salespeople and, and more engaging in building that relationship. Thanks, Nat. Well put. And while we're with you, thank you so much for bringing Rich on because you were the one that dragged him kicking and screaming to the Project Chatter podcast. No, you didn't. Uh, Rich, thank you so much. Any final thoughts from you? Um, well, the whole premise of, uh, of this conversation was around Crossrail being a failed project and, and why. And so I will reiterate um, you know, any project uh, that is 10 years, that is 30% over budget, 30% uh, late, to me, um, given the, the huge benefits it's delivering, um, you know, be gone with you if you're going to call Crossrail a failure. Um, I, I just won't, uh, I just won't accept that. Um, so, yeah, uh, but anyone, anyone that knows me um, knows, can connect with me uh, on LinkedIn and I'm pretty uh, honest and open book about these things um, and always happy to, to share lessons um, that I've experienced and, and that are out there for, for other projects to benefit from. So yeah, keep the conversation going. I've, I've loved being on the podcast. It's, it's been great. Brilliant. Thank you. We've loved having you, Rich. Really, really appreciate that. Val, any final thoughts? Oh, Rich, it's great to have you. I think uh, for those that are listening who may maybe had some media skewed views on Crossrail, hopefully you've demystified some of that and given them an insight that they might not have had, had we not had this podcast. And this is truly what Dale and I are trying to do, have people like yourself who are passionate, honest, uh, on, on, the, on the pod to, to share their experiences about big projects because there is a lot of interest, but there's also a lot of pressure and there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and I think having people like yourself on was great. Nat, it's always good to have you on board because, you know, software is, is at the, I'm just curious, really. I love to play a Dell's advocate. I guess I'm wearing a red jumper for those that are watching. So that's my job. We've got a red and green. We need an amber jumper now, Dale, I think, um, just to have the rag status, you know. But Nat, it's always good to have you on. You're so passionate and open-minded and thoughtful. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great. And Dave Pulford, shout out to you, sir. He's not even on the pod. He's not even here. But if anyone's thinking about the Dave joke, uh, you know, check out Dave Pulford. Send him a message. Give him some love on LinkedIn. Um, Thanks to him as well and Martin as well. It's been a great pod. Thanks, guys. It has. It has. So, folks, that is all we have time for on this episode. But it doesn't have to stop here. Support our charities and access blogs. Or if you think you have something awesome to share, visit projectshatterpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe on our YouTube channel and your favorite podcast player. Can't even talk. Your favorite podcast player. So you don't miss the next one. A massive, massive thank you to Nat Moyes for coming back again. Thank you, Nat. And to Richard Polchinski for sharing everything he has on this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me, Val, and Martin, it's bye for now. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.